Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. In the last episode, we talked all about the positive side of being single. For a lot of folks, being single is a voluntary choice. It's what they want, and it can bring with it a number of benefits. The stereotype we often hear about singles in the popular media is that they're sad, but in reality, a lot of them are thriving and living their best lives. At the same time, however, there are some for whom being single just sucks, like majorly. So we're going to talk about them today. We're going to explore when being single is a negative experience. We're going to discuss the social stigma that exists against singles, how this varies across cultures, how the experience of being single differs across gender and sexual orientation, as well as how people's attachment style impacts the experience of singlehood. For today's episode, I am joined once again by Dr. Yuthika Girme, an associate professor in the Department of Psychology at Simon Fraser University in Canada. Her research focuses on reconciling the complexities associated with singlehood and relationship experiences with the aim of fostering security and well-being. This is going to be an amazing conversation. Stick around, and we're going to jump in right after the break. Become a certified sex educator, counselor, or therapist with the Modern Sex Therapy Institutes. MSTI offers 20 certification options in areas including medical sexology, kink, neurodiversity, and LGBTQIA affirmative therapy. They also offer a PhD program in clinical sexology that can be completed in two years and meets all ASEC certification requirements. All programs can be completed 100% online and are flexible and customizable to fit your schedule. You can take live courses the third weekend of each month and choose from over 300 archive workshops taught by renowned experts in the field. For more information, visit ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. That's ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. Okay, Yutika, so we've talked about when being single is awesome. Now let's talk about when it's not so great. Now, while some people love being single, other people hate it. And there are lots of potential reasons for why someone might not be happy with being single. And I think one of the most obvious ones would be feeling rejected or socially stigmatized because you're single. Bella DiPaolo coined the term singleism to refer to all of this stigmatization of adults who aren't in relationships that they might experience. So tell us a bit about that. What are some of the distressing ways in which singles can be stigmatized or left out in society? Yeah. So I think there are sort of two levels with this. I alluded to one earlier when we were talking about societal structures. So I think at an institutional level, there are policies in place that really do harm single people. Tax benefits that are awarded to coupled people that are not awarded to single individuals. Housing is a lot easier to get if you're a couple trying to get a mortgage or a rental application compared to if you're a single person. Sometimes, like I mentioned, access to medical procedures. So I think there are like at an institutional level things that single people are just, they do not have the ability to access these benefits. I think that's where some of this research has an opportunity to make really important welfare policy level changes, right? Like if we can change things at that level to make single people's lives easier, 
I think this work has a lot of potential there. But also at kind of the more interpersonal level, there are a lot of examples of when single individuals feel discriminated against. Some of this is being left out of social events, right? Oh, you know, didn't think you would want to come. It was all like the coupled friends. I remember Bella Tupolo talking about this example with me once of like even at work being asked to stay back because, oh, you know, you don't have a family or a partner to go home to, so can you stay later and finish X, Y, Z? The assumption being that if you don't have those two things, then you have nothing else going on in your life. I also think there are questions that people ask, you know, why are you single? No, but I don't get it. Like, you're cool. You're great. Why does no one want to be with you? Like, <laughs> the implication is that there's something wrong with you as a person. That's why no one wants to be in a relationship with you. So I think questions like that can be really harmful. They make assumptions about single individuals that they might be not that friendly, that they may be something wrong with them. They might have insecurities. They might have personal deficit that makes it hard for them to be around. So I think a lot of that can be really problematic. Yeah. And I've seen all of those things come up <laughs> in different ways, whether it's through people I know or through popular media depictions, you know, that idea of singles being left out, you know, on my flight down to Atlanta, I was watching an episode of The Office where Jan and Michael were hosting a dinner party and they were going to have Pam and Jim over and Dwight said, what time should I be there? And Michael says, you can't come. This is for couples, right? Exactly. <laughs> this kind of thing, while it's, you know, funny in The Office, like it's not so funny in real life. Mm -hmm. And people are often left out just because they're single. They don't want that third wheel or fifth wheel. And they might think they're protecting that single person or whatever, but actually you might be hurting them and, and doing some harm in that process. Yeah, and it's also difficult because I think often when discrimination against single people happens, it's coming from our close family and friends. Yep. You know, like singleism is unique in the sense that it's a relatively invisible identity. Unless I know you, I wouldn't know what your relationship status is. It's not like you're walking down the street and being able to point out, oh, that person's married, that person's single. So the, the sources of support that people would be turning to are also the places where single individuals are experiencing discrimination. And in that sense, I think it's really difficult because you're having to reconcile these really ambivalent feelings between people that you love and that you know that they love you and they want what's quote unquote best for you. But maybe that comes in a way that's not intended and not particularly productive. Yeah, I think those are all such important points. Now, when it comes to attitudes toward singlehood, there are wide differences across cultures. And there's a lot more pressure to marry in some cultures than others. And when families immigrate from one culture to another, they often bring the same relationship values with them. So even if you were to move to a culture where singlehood might be more accepted, there might still be a lot of pressure from family to marry and to marry quickly. So can you tell us a little bit more about the role of family and culture when it comes to shaping people's experiences with being single? Yeah. I mean, I think that's really fascinating. And in our review, we definitely saw like a lot of work that had been done in this area was looking at Asian cultures. And there's still, I will say, a lot of variation even among 
Asian cultures. So I think I remember a review paper showing that people from China, like families from China, there was a lot more social pressure to marry compared to places like Singapore and Japan, where there's this huge rise in singlehood and it's becoming really normative and accepted that it's people remain single for a good proportion of their like, you know, 20s and 30s. So there's definitely a lot of variation even among Western versus Eastern cultures. I think we still see this even within some like Western societies. And part of that is because there's so much diversity, even within places like America, you know, and that, like you mentioned, people bring these values with us. So I can imagine that there are families that have come from very communal orientated cultures and family is important. And how do you get a family? Well, you need a partner first. So there's a lot of pressure for people to get into a relationship and, I think sometimes it's also about like what your social network looks like. So we have some research that we're kind of conducting in our lab right now showing that when single people have social networks that are really saturated by coupled friends and family members, that they then report greater pressure to marry or to partner. So sometimes it's also just a byproduct of like who is around you. And if all of your friends are coupled up and you are the only one that's not, then you feel it. Even if it's just implicitly without anyone saying anything to you, I think people just feel that pressure. Yeah. So it has so much to do with the networks you're embedded in, cultural factors. I think China is an interesting one to talk about, you know, where in the research you see there's that high pressure to marry and, you know, be in relationship and have a family. But China's one child policy for so long <laughs> right. led to this really skewed sex ratio. And so you have way more men in the population than women. And most people are heterosexual. And so you have this huge population of men who just want to be in relationships, they're pressured to be in them, but they can't because there aren't enough people to go around, you know? Right. So it kind of makes you wonder why singlehood isn't more accepted there, because that's just going to leave so many people out. But, you know, again, that just goes back to the singleism we've been discussing. Mm -hmm. Now, something I'm really curious to ask your thought on is how gender factors into all of this. So on the one hand, people might expect that single women would be more stigmatized than single men. And historically, that was often the case. For example, an older woman who wasn't married historically was often referred to with pejorative terms such as being called a spinster or an old maid. And there was never really an equivalent of that term for men, you know, regardless of age, they were just called bachelors. On the basis of that, you might be tempted to assume that singlehood is going to be experienced less positively by women. But on the other hand, stereotypes about men and traditional ideas of masculinity and that pressure to conform to them often lead guys to not express their emotions. One consequence of this is that their romantic relationships often become their primary source of social support. So when men, particularly heterosexual men, don't have a romantic partner, they often don't have any other sources of meaningful social support in their life. So one might argue on the basis of that that being single might be a more negative experience for men than it is for women. So what can you tell us about all of this? How is singlehood experienced similarly or differently for men versus women? Yeah, this is like so interesting because I think there's so much like anecdotal evidence of gendered experiences 
among single women and men. And I will say, we talk about it in a really binary way, but I want to acknowledge that there are people, that gender is very fluid. It's a continuum. And so I just want to kind of like put that out there. But the evidence is largely inconsistent. So a lot of the quantitative literature that has asked um, single people's like perceptions of discrimination find very little or inconsistent evidence that there are any personal differences among single men and single women's experiences of discrimination. But then if you take a look at focus groups that have asked single women about their experiences, then you get all of this like really nuanced kind of examples of women, single women saying that they experience hardship because of, as you mentioned, negative gendered stereotypes about single women, which they don't translate to single men necessarily. I don't think there's a single study that's looked at focus groups of single men. Not a single one that I came across. And if I'm wrong, someone, whoever's <laughs> listening, who's out there, please reach out to me because... In reconciling some of this, I think that's like a really important step forward is to start actually having conversations with single men about these experiences and really try and tap into where are they feeling it? Because there may be some nuances there. The one that you touched on, which I think is important, is that social support piece. That there is very good evidence that single men, when they don't do so great, is because they don't perceive social support. And that is because typically men are sort of socialized to not show their emotions. And so their romantic partner is someone that really takes a lot of that, absorbs a lot of that kind of burden. But also I think that single men who are in relationships with female identifying partners, it's often the female partner that is organizing social events for them. So men also just don't know how to engage in friendship. And we talked about how important that is earlier. And so I feel like there needs to be more work done on how can we help men in general, I think would benefit from this, but particularly single men who don't have a romantic partner, how might they benefit from being able to cultivate important friendships, you know, with people in their life? Yeah. And I think it's important to point out, you know, when you're talking in these broad stroke terms about men versus women, always individual variability, but men who are socialized to, you know, conform to these ideas of not being emotionally expressive, I think are the ones who are most likely to to struggle with this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if they're heterosexual to depend on their partner, to be that source of social support, to plan social events and all that other kind of stuff. Something this has me thinking about is some of the stuff we saw during the pandemic when we had all this social isolation. It was experienced differently across gender. But one of the things that we saw for men was that a lot of them realized like how tenuous their friendships and their connections outside of their romantic relationships were. Their friends didn't call to check in on them and to see how they're doing. And, you know, I think that's just one example, one manifestation of how these limitations on men's ability to develop and foster deep connections with their friends is, you know, very limiting for them in a lot of ways. And I think some of that is also because the ways that men do connect is often through activity. So it's, hey, do you want to go to that sporting event together? Or do you want to go play rugby or whatever it is, you know? So I think often for men, they need like 
an excuse, it seems, of like, we're doing an activity. I don't, you know, or, or even like playing video games together, right? So it's, I feel like they talk and communicate and they deepen connection through activity. And I think one of the challenges of the pandemic is that we weren't allowed to have those activities. And so it kind of severed that mechanism for men to reach out to friends. Whereas for women, they're socialized to just talk about their feelings. It was more natural, I think, for women. It wasn't jarring for them to just be able to pick up the phone or hop on a Zoom call and reach out to their girlfriends and and maybe guy friends and, you know, see how they're doing. Yeah. To go back to one thing you said earlier about no one's really interviewed single men about what their experiences are like. The closest I can think of to work that's been done in that area is the small but growing body of research on incels, the involuntarily mm-hmm. celibate men. And we did an episode of the show a while back where I talked to William Costello about some of his research in this area. And for these guys, they really want to have sexual and romantic relationships, but they feel unable to find them and they organize this whole social identity around it. And they're very distressed by that inability to form those relationships. And sometimes that leads to negative social consequences. So I'm curious if you've, in your work on singlehood, ever come across much in the way of incels? I haven't personally focused on this. I think it's a really fascinating topic. I think the closest thing that I've come to is this narrative, often by single women, that they just feel better off because they feel the quality of male partners or potential male partners is just really low. I actually think that there's a researcher, I can't remember their name, but they wrote about this piece about how single men really need to foster better relationship skills. And he got a lot of hate mail (laughs) for for that. Um, It does raise an interesting issue of relationship efficacy, you know, and what we are teaching young people about relationships, that if they do want to pursue them, you know, what are the important things to consider there? Like, you know, you asked about incels and I feel like things about around consent, personal boundary setting, you know, like how to actually approach someone that you might be romantically interested in and how to accept rejection without it completely shattering your own self-worth. And again, we talked about, you know, fostering feelings of security. And I really feel like that's an important part of that incel puzzle is that, you know, we all experience rejection. Some of us take it and handle it better than others. And yeah, I think I'd be interested to know with sort of that incel community of single men, is there something we can do to help them regulate when they have experienced rejection before they get to that point, right? Like, is there something we can do for young people to make them feel more secure, give them the skills to build good relationships that can prevent rejection? And to be fair, even on the flip side, if you do want to reject a potential dating partner, how can you do that in a way that's not going to be harmful, right? I feel like in the recent years, there's this whole thing about ghosting and it's like, we should be doing better. If you don't want to meet someone, you should be able to say, hey, I think you're really lovely and I had a really good time. I just don't think we're you know, we don't have the same interests or I just don't find you physically attractive or whatever the reason is. I think we need to find ways to better communicate those reasons instead of just like not, 
saying anything at all to people, and then it's just a bad transaction. So I think there's work to be done, certainly on both sides of that equation. Yeah, and I feel like we could go down this rabbit hole for a long time, (laughs) you know, because if you also think about it from the lens of women are disproportionately likely to experience sexual violence, domestic violence, relationships are riskier for women in some ways compared to men. And in the era of Me Too, you have a lot of men who are afraid of flirting because they're afraid of being called a creep or being accused of something inappropriate. And so, you know, that then becomes this whole other thing. But, you know, (laughs) that could be a whole other separate podcast episode. So let's talk about sexual orientation for a moment. Now, being in a visible same-sex or same-gender relationship can become a marker, in a way, of your sexual minority status, which might actually increase experiences with homophobia. And so single LGBTQ people might experience somewhat less in the way of anti-gay bias for that reason. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that LGBTQ people necessarily have more positive experiences with being single than cisgender heterosexual people. They might still face pressure from family and friends to partner up. And anecdotally, I feel like that pressure has only increased in recent years with the rise of same-sex marriage. So do you have any thoughts on this? You know, How does sexual orientation factor into experiences with singlehood? Yeah, I really love this question because it really highlights the importance of intersectional identities when we consider any of this work. So the piece that you talked about, like how singlehood may, you know, quote unquote, protect queer people because they don't have to out themselves if they're not ready. Interestingly, this also tends to become a stereotype. So if someone is single beyond sort of like a normative age of what would be considered time to settle down, people start attributing that, oh, maybe that's because he's gay, but he just doesn't want to come out. Or maybe she's a lesbian and like she just doesn't want to come out, which I also think is problematic, by the way. Like, I don't think we should be making attributions or judgments about people's sexuality based on their relationship status at all. But, you know, when you talked about the cost of some of this, you're also just suddenly also projecting regardless of what that person's sexuality might be. So I think it's interlaced with stereotypes. It may allow queer people to like navigate their sexuality and come out when they're ready to and when they feel safe to. But yeah, at the same time, they're also grappling with people might start assuming all this uh, narrative also recently about queer baiting, right? Like that's a gain. It's sort of in the similar thing. People are just very interested and then want to know. I don't know why people feel like they're just, this is such an important agenda for them, but it is a fascinating area to kind of try and tease apart when being single as a queer person, where that is beneficial and where it might actually be really problematic. Your question about the pressure to marry then is like also interesting. I wonder whether the pressure is for same-sex couples who have been together for a long time but aren't married, right? Like, Mm -hmm. oh, but you two have been together for like 15 years and now it's legal to get married. Why don't you get married? I would think that it's happening more for those couples. I could be wrong, but... It's interesting because, again, what's the assumption? What do we hold truly valuable in society (laughs) is Mm -hmm. marriage. And as if your relationship means any less, right? Like if you're not married. So I think that 
those are important kind of things to consider as well. Whether single gay people experience more pressure now that it's like legal is also interesting. I don't think anyone's even looked at this, not that I'm aware of. It would be interesting for us to kind of consider, especially in societies where this has become legalized. Yeah, and I think it's also going to vary regionally based on sort of what the relationship values are. So, you know, for example, in the U.S., if you live in a more conservative area, there might be more pressure or you might feel more pressure if you're a single gay person to be in a relationship or to get married to, I don't know, somehow legitimize or normalize that relationship to some degree. And I do wonder whether this pressure would also come from within the queer community, right? Like it's not just coming from like your grandma who's like, well, now you can marry your boyfriend, so go for it. Um, But it may actually be coming from like within the queer community to be like, well, why are you not supporting our community by doing this? You right. know, so I think that's really fascinating and and very important future directions to consider with this work. Yeah, and it's like you know we worked so damn hard to get same sex right. marriage. Yeah, take advantage of it. Yeah, you know? just get married. <laughs> <laughs> so we've talked a lot about social and cultural factors that affect people's experiences with singlehood, but I want to go back to one individual factor. In the previous episode, we talked a little bit about attachment security, but I want to talk a little bit more about attachment anxiety and avoidance Mm -hmm. because I think a lot of people would assume that if you're, say, high in anxious attachment, being single is going to be a bad thing because you're not getting your needs met. And if you're high in attachment avoidance, maybe being single is great because you don't have to have that emotional intimacy that you might be comfortable with. But I think the research is a little bit more nuanced there. So can you tell us a little bit more about attachment anxiety and avoidance and how that's related to singlehood? Yeah. So people who are high in attachment anxiety, they're really concerned about whether they're truly loved and cared about by others. And I think that singlehood is really difficult for people who are highly anxious because what's a better marker for being loved and cared about than having someone who loves and like literally wants to like be with you 24-7, loves you and is committed to you. So I think that people who are high in attachment anxiety, when they're single, they really struggle. And I think there is like sufficient evidence um, and growing evidence to support that this is the case, they're also more likely to have greater fears of being single, which is, as it sounds, it's like a fear and worry that you're always going to be single, that there's no one who's ever going to want to be with you. As you can imagine, having those fears of being single is not a great thing for then when you are in a context trying to impress someone that you like, because it actually interferes with people's like interpersonal like confidence and connection and people can sense that you're really anxious about that. If you're high in fear of being single, you're actually more likely to get rejected during like speed dating studies and things that we've assessed the royal we have assessed in the literature. So I think it is really hard for people who are high in attachment anxiety. People who are high in attachment avoidance have very different concerns. They have had quite cold and rejecting experiences. And so they feel like you can't truly depend on people to be responsive to your needs. And instead, it's better to just be self-reliant. Now, I think on the surface of that, singlehood might actually be well, hey, that's kind of a definition of singlehood as being an independent person. And there is some evidence to show that people who are high in avoidance, they may be 
relatively satisfied with their singlehood, but that doesn't always necessarily mean that they're going to be satisfied with life in general and other more broader psychological well-being factors. And I think that's important because people who are high in attachment avoidance, one of the things that they're doing is they're not just rebuffing intimate relationships, but they're also rebuffing any form of close relationship. Things like friendship, things like family connection, things like the connection you have with your community. So I think with people who are highly avoidant, singlehood might be really great. They may even be very good at getting their sexual needs met because they're more likely to have, you know, casual sex and get their sort of sexual needs met in that way. But I think they're also pushing away the people that can make singlehood a really thriving experience, which is other important sources. So there is definitely nuance there, and it's important to kind of like tease that apart. Yeah. Spoken like a true scientist. I was just going to say, every answer you give it says, depends. there's a lot of nuance here. There's not the same story for everyone. So based on your research, is there anything else you want to tell us about singlehood or singles experiences? Yeah, I think the only other thing I want to touch on is, you know, today's episode, we talked about when single people are thriving, when single people might be struggling. We talk about this as a binary, as they're two kind of like distinct experiences. But I want to acknowledge that single individuals might be experiencing both of these things simultaneously. So you could be a single person who is choosing to be single. You love it. You're happy. You have great friends. You're thriving. But you might still be experiencing challenges like discrimination, like pressure from family, like being embedded in a society that doesn't necessarily value those life experiences and makes day-to-day living difficult. So I think if some people want to take an important point away is that you can be experiencing all of this simultaneously. It's complicated and it's very valid to be experiencing all of this or just one, right? I don't want to push the agenda that if you're single, you have to be happy. If you're single and you are sad about that, that's okay, right? Like everyone wants to be loved. Everyone wants connection. Some people want that from friends and family and some people want that from a romantic partner. And I think all of those things are really valid experiences and wants and needs. I love that you said that because I think it highlights how singlehood, like any other type of relationship status or experience is complicated. And you got the same story. If you're in a long-term relationship, you can love and hate your partner at the same time. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for all of this amazing conversation. It was a pleasure to have you here and to learn more about your work in this area. So can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work? If you have a website, if you're on the socials, where can they go? Yeah, we have an Instagram account at securelab.sfu. We just launched it, so please follow. And we kind of talk a lot about singlehood experiences and also complexities around relationships too, generally. So we have that. We have a website, www.securerecearchlab.com. If you're an academic who wants to hear a little bit more, you know, academic nonsense, I'm also on Twitter at Yuthika Girme. So, yeah. 
Well, thank you so much again for joining me. It was a pleasure to have you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology, at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.